we have to recognize that when we're with other people, we may have to accommodate different preferences and different styles. Now, it becomes a conflict when I do all the cleaning because you don't care as much as I do. And so I feel like you're kind of taking advantage of my higher standards. That's when people start to feel angry and resentful. And so it's helpful to talk about it and say, well, how do we set up a situation where we can both thrive? Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Hi, everyone, all you Gretchen Rubin fans out there, welcome live. This is the Mind Valley podcast with Gretchen Rubin. Now, I want to remind you, for those of you who are watching this, that this is a live recording. Gretchen's with us. And I'm watching the Zoom count come in. There are about 100 of our Mind Valley members who have showed up live right now. It is now 150. The numbers are growing really fast. So for those of you who are live with us, give Gretchen an idea of where you're from. Say hi. Let us know what Gretchen Rubin books you've read and tell us where in the world you are. Gretchen, welcome to Mind Valley. I'm so happy to be talking to you today. And I see here somebody from New York. That's where I am. I'm in New York City. So it's so fun to see. Oh, Africa, Santiago. This is really fun. Gretchen, you'll notice that this audience is really, really, really diverse. There are people from all around the world. Oh, look at that. Sabah, Malaysia, Vancouver, Spain. That's phenomenal. So we're going to wait till we hit about 300 live participants, and then we're going to begin. Now, you guys know the rules of this podcast, but I'm going to reiterate them while Gretchen is here you can actually ask questions. So if you open up the Q&A box on Zoom, ask your biggest question to Gretchen Rubin. You can ask about her most recent book, which I'm currently 65% done with. It's called Outer Order, Inner Calm. It's a New York Times bestseller, and it's about how to declutter and organize to make more room for happiness. Beautiful book. I'm going to touch upon that in a moment. You can ask questions on Outer Order in a Calm, or you can also ask questions on any of Gretchen's incredible body of work on human happiness and living, including her framework, which we're going to be discussing, called The Four Tendencies. Let's start with this question, Outer Order in a Calm. What made you write this book? You know, it's interesting. I've been studying happiness, you know, for more than a decade. And I was very struck by the fact that for most people, not for everyone, but for most people, and certainly for me, Outer order contributed to inner calm really more than it seemed like it should, because it seems like something like a crowded coat closet or an overflowing in basket should not be a big deal. And obviously, in the context of a happy life, it's trivial. And yet over and over, people would say to me, wow, you know, when I create order in my environment, I feel so much better myself. Like somebody said to me, I finally cleaned out my fridge and now I know I can switch careers. And I was like, I know how that feels. And of all the resolutions that people say make them happier, the thing that people most often mention, it's not the most significant thing you can do to be happier, but it's the thing that most often comes up is to make your bed. This little act every day is just something that makes people feel happier, more energetic, more in control of their lives. And maybe it's irrational, but it's effective. And I was just very drawn to that. I'm like, why do people feel this? Some people don't feel this. Some people are clutter blind. What does it mean to be clutter blind? Like my sister is clutter blind. And given that for most people, outer order does contribute to inner calm, what are some of the kind of easy, manageable practices that we can incorporate into our everyday lives to make it easier to maintain that order without having to constantly devote a ton of time and energy to it? 
which is very tiresome. Gretchen, first thing I wanted to point out is that what I like about this book is it's so directly actionable. So I started reading the book today. I take my interviews very seriously, so I always read the author's book. But I had difficulty finishing your book because I would read the first principle. There are five principles. I'd read the first principle, but then I'd look around my home and I'm like, damn it, Gretchen would be so disappointed. And then I went, I literally went into a half an hour rapid clean off my kitchen. And then I came to my senses and I'm like, I got to continue reading the book because I'm, I'm going to be speaking to Gretchen in like two hours. And okay. so it was a really hard book. I wouldn't say a hard book to put down. It was a hard book to continue because it's so good. It gets you off your butt. <laughs> and, and my kitchen has never looked more delicious. And don't you feel kind of more focused and more energetic having all that clutter removed and that more orderliness around you? Yes, yes, I've noticed. And now this is something really interesting. So I went through a divorce two years ago. And so what happened when I went through a divorce is I was living in a shared apartment with my then wife. We are still friends, Christina. She's a big part of Mind Valley, and we have two kids. And so I went through a divorce. We both moved to Europe together. I'm currently in Estonia. So the children live with Christina in a beautiful house, a former house, like around a 10-minute walk away. I bought myself this beautiful penthouse apartment. So now I'm living by myself. What I find, at first I dreaded the idea of all of a sudden living by myself in Europe, having to ensure that my place was clean, keeping everything organized, because we used to live back in Asia. And if you know anything about Asia or Latin America, any middle-class family has a live-in maid. In Malaysia, where I live, every middle-class family has a live-in maid. Literally, there's a room, you have a maid, everything is done for you. You do not lift a finger. Your lunch and breakfast and dinner are cooked, your clothes are ironed, the cleaning is done. And that's just a function of those societies, whether it's Hong Kong or Singapore or Kuala Lumpur or Thailand or Indonesia, it's really intriguing. So all of a sudden I come to Europe, nobody has a living maid, everybody cleans up after themselves. And I was thinking, wow, this is gonna be so unproductive. But I noticed something really interesting, Gretchen. I noticed that firstly, cleaning up, it doesn't take much time at all when you are organized. But secondly, there seems to be a Zen-like feeling that tends to emerge when you are bringing order to your clutter, whether it's cleaning the kitchen or it's cleaning the living room. And I found that it's almost like a meditative feeling. I never expected that, but I relish this feeling. I love cleaning up. I will say what I imagine many listeners are thinking, which is it's a lot easier when you don't have two kids making a mess the minute you have your done cleanup. <laughs> When we're cleaning up after ourselves, there's that feeling of total control. And like if we clean something up, it stays cleaned up. It can be a source of conflict dealing with other people's clutter. And maybe they're just untidy or maybe they also have a different level of expectation. They feel comfortable at a level of orderliness that is either higher or lower than your own. So uh -huh. this is a place where a lot of times it is easier to maintain it at the level that you prefer when you're mostly in control of your own space. We often see this in a workspace too, of course, right? Like the office kitchen, some people want it to be really orderly. Some people are comfortable with it being a little bit untidy and that can really drain people and lead to a lot of conflict. Yeah, so it seems that when you have a shared space with someone, now I don't know if this is just my observation or it's true, but it seems that when you have a shared space with someone, it tends to be messier and less orderly. Is there a reason for that? Well, just more people are doing more things. One of the things that I didn't understand until I really started looking at this is what we're talking about is preferences. People have different preferences. 
And a lot of times you'll have one person saying, a cluttered desk means a cluttered mind, or you should keep things a certain way, or it's more creative to be messy, or you can't leave dishes in the sink overnight. The fact is, yes, you can. You can do anything you want. It's not one way is better and one way is worse. It's not that one way is more creative or one way is more productive. It's that people have different preferences. And so when we talk about it, we have to talk about, well, this is how I feel good and productive. And that's how you feel good and productive. When I feel like I need to have a certain sense of orderliness to focus, you might say like, why am I wasting my time constantly filing stuff if I just am getting it out again? I think you're wasting our time where someone else is like, well, I can't focus like this. And it's not that one person's right and one person's wrong. It's that people have different preferences. You also see this with simplicity lovers and abundance lovers. Some people like bare counters, not much on the shelves, not much going on, a lot of like beautiful emptiness. And I'm definitely like this. But then a lot of people like profusion and abundance and choice and collecting. There's not a lot going on. What to me seems like peaceful and organized to them might seem sterile and strict. And so we have to recognize that when we're with other people, we may have to accommodate different preferences and different styles. Now, it becomes a conflict when I do all the cleaning because you don't care as much as I do. And so I feel like you're kind of taking advantage of my higher standards. That's when people start to feel angry and resentful. And so it's helpful to talk about it and say, well, how do we set up a situation where we can both thrive? Is this also, I want to share with you and the audience this image from your book. Okay, so this is from page, well, in, in my iPad, yes. page 128. So it's the concept of the upholder, the questioner, the rebel, and the obliger. So these are different personality types. Could you explain this image? Because I found this idea intriguing. Yes. When I was writing my book, Better Than Before, which is all about habit formation, I was very intrigued by the fact that people have different patterns of like when things were difficult for them to form habits or when it was easier. And then I started seeing it, these patterns coming up even outside the habit formation area. So what the four tendencies look at is a very narrow but very significant aspect of your nature, which is how you respond to expectations, which sounds boring, but it's actually very juicy. We all face two kinds of expectations, outer expectations like a work deadline, and inner expectations, like my own desire to write a novel in my free time. So depending on whether you meet or resist outer and inner expectations, that's what makes you an upholder, a questioner, an obliger, or a rebel. That was the image you just showed. And if I'm going to describe them right now. There is a quiz online, a free quick quiz. If you go to quiz.gretchenrubin.com, you can take the quiz and like get a, an answer and a report. Some people like to do that. But really, most people know what they are from this, this description. So you can recognize characters from movies and TV shows, like people in your life. It's very easy once these are pointed out. They're very obvious. So upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. They meet the work deadline, like they keep a New Year's resolution without much fuss. They want to know what other people expect from them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. Their motto is discipline is my freedom. Then there are questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. So they resist anything arbitrary, ineffective, unjustified. They have to know why. They tend to love customization and research. If something meets their inner standard, they will do it no problem. If it fails their inner standard, they will push back. So their motto is, I'll comply if you convince me why. 
Then there are obligers. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. And I got my insight into this tendency when a friend said to me, you know, I know I'm happier when I exercise. And when I was in high school, I was on the track team and I never missed track practice. So why can't I go running now? Well, when she had a team and a coach expecting her to show up, no problem. But when she's trying to go on her own, it's a challenge. And when obligers want to meet an inner expectation, they have to create a system of outer accountability. That is key. You want to read more, join a book group. You want to exercise, take a class, work out with a friend who's going to be annoyed if you don't show up, raise money for a charity, take your dog for a run. And your dog's going to be so disappointed if he doesn't get to go for a run. You need that outer accountability. So their motto is, you can count on me, and I'm counting on you to count on me. And then finally, rebels. Rebels resist outer and inner expectations alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way and in their own time. They can do anything they want to do, anything they choose to do. But if you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. And typically, they don't tell themselves what to do. Like, they don't sign up for a 10 a.m. woodworking class on Saturday because they think, I don't know what I'm going to want to do on Saturday. And just the idea that someone's expecting me to show up is going to annoy me. So their motto is, you can't make me, and neither can I. And the interesting thing is there's not the same number of all these sentences. If everybody knows what they are, start putting it in, because it'll be fascinating to see who's watching. We see a rebel right there. I see one rebel. Rebel is the smallest tendency. It's conspicuous, but it's small. My tendency, the upholder tendency, only slightly larger. The biggest tendency for both men and women is obliger. You either are an obliger or you have many obligers in your life. And the second largest is questioner. So when you're thinking about kind of going out in the world with a curriculum or a program or something, you want to think, well, a lot of the people are going to be obligers and questioners, and I'm going to have a handful of rebels and a handful of upholders. Wow. Well, okay. So this is really- You have a lot of rebels in your group, I think. It's my work. I have a lot of rebels in my group because my work is all about questioning the status quo. I think that's why rebels sometimes are attracted to Mind Valley. But at the same time, we have a lot of questioners and obligers as well. Yeah. Very few upholders, I would guess. But guys, you can take this quiz on Gretchen's website. That's quiz.gretchenrubin.com. G-R-E-T-C-H-E-N-R-U-B-I-N.com. Go check it out. It's really, really, really interesting. Now, Gretchen, I love this Four Tendencies quiz, right? Now, what does that have to do with outer order in a column? So when you know your tendency, you can kind of figure out how to hack yourself so that you can achieve your aim. So let's say you're an obliger and you need outer accountability. So let's say you want to clean up your guest room. Well, you might invite a guest to come stay with you, or you might say, oh, I'm going to have people over because I'm going to feel like I have to clean up my house if I know that I'm going to have guests over. Or I might think, oh, you know, if I create an orderly environment, I think the other members of my household will feel less stress. I think they'll feel more focused, especially when people are spending much more time at home. I think it's going to create a more inviting environment. So I'm going to do that because it's going to benefit other people. Mm -hmm. That sense of, or I want to be a role model. I want other people to be orderly. I want it, you know, so I'm going to show that myself. So that's outer accountability. A questioner might think like, why would I do this? Why would I spend my time cleaning up? Oh, maybe I find that I spend less time looking for things if I'm very organized. And so my work is more efficient and I have less frustration when I'm more orderly. Maybe I feel like it's a source of conflict with other people. And so if I do this, then I'm going to have an easier time dealing with an important relationship in my life. A rebel would focus on why they want it. They're not doing it because they're supposed to. They're not doing it because anybody else cares. They're like, I like it like this. 
I've always been a person who gets energy from my surroundings. I love a beautiful space. I love the feeling of being a pilot in a cockpit with everything just where I want. I want like a surgeon to have my tools right at hand. That's what I want. That's what I like. So I'm going to do this so I can have things my way. And if you're dealing with a rebel, you might remind them, this is what you like. You're not doing this because I'm asking you to. You're doing it because this is what you like. And a lot of times rebels are like, yeah, that is what I like. Upholders, they do better when it's clear to them what their own expectations are for themselves. So one of the things I do is like at the end of every workday, I take 10 minutes and I do what I call a 10 minute closer, where I just take 10 minutes to kind of like put away everything I got out. I take my coffee mugs to the kitchen. I throw away my trash. I put the pens back in the pen cups, file things, put books back on shelves, you know, just, and I had that time set aside because I like everything orderly. Now, some upholders maybe don't care because upholders don't necessarily have a standard. They just know whatever they expect from themselves, they'll do it. You could be a clutter-blind upholder, in which case you just wouldn't even care. And people who are clutter-blind don't care. They're people for whom outer order just doesn't really matter. My sister's like this, the co-host of the Happier with Gretchen Rubin podcast. She just doesn't care. She tries to keep things tidy because she lives with other people who do care. But to her, like there is a small group of people for whom outer order doesn't contribute to inner calm. It just doesn't matter. But often they live with other people or work with other people to whom it does matter. And then they have to figure out a solution. <laughs> I did the quiz and I am a rebel. I was picking that up just from even the way you frame ideas. I find this interesting. Rebels resist all expectation, outer and inner. So, gosh, it sounds like something is off with us. How should rebels be organized? How should okay. we organize our whole? Well, one of the things I would say is that all of the tendencies include people who are wildly successful and also big losers. Uh-huh. And being happier, healthier, more productive, more successful isn't a matter of what tendency you're in, but have you figured out how to harness the strength of your tendency and also how to deal with the limitations and weaknesses of your tendency? And so it's really about figuring yourself out and how to set yourself up for happiness and success rather than like, you need to change. You don't need to change, but like there's a lot of tools you can use that other people in your tendency have figured out so that you can get where you wanna go. So for rebels, there's tremendous power in the rebel tendency. They're unstoppable. They love a challenge. They are so in touch with their authentic desire. They can do anything they wanna do. It's just like the focus and the energy there is tremendous, but they can be frustrating to other people or they can frustrate themselves because they can't tell themselves what to do. And so a lot of times like boring drudge work repetitive things can really so rebels say to me like auto pay rebels don't like to pay bills they don't like to be told they have to pay a bill on time use auto pay so you just don't even need to do that (laughs) i'm laughing gretchen because a few months ago i almost had all my electricity and my internet turned off because i can't be bothered to figure out how to pay the bills finally my assistant had to step in and ensure that everything was paid properly i frequently had this problem I hate bills. I hate letters. I hate any form of conformity. Yes. Okay. And here's something else that maybe is, it would be helpful to you. When you have a rebel like yourself and there's people around them, like a romantic pairing or uh-huh. a founding team of a company or like the people around you, when one person is a rebel, you look for obligers. That's overwhelmingly the tendency. If one person is a rebel, someone close to them is going to be an obliger because that is the matchup that tends mm. to, I mean, I would never say never, but that is overwhelmingly the pattern. So I would probably think that in your circle, you probably have someone near you who's an obliger. And so once you know that about yourself as a rebel, 
you can set things up for yourself to work. So for instance, I have a friend who's a rebel, wildly successful guy. He wanted to write a book based on some work that he did in Silicon Valley. Now, typically as a nonfiction writer, you write a proposal, you sell it, and then you like write the book after you have a contract. He didn't do that. He wrote the whole book first and then tried to sell it. And I said, why did you do that? And he said, look, I felt like writing a book because I had a lot to say, but I knew that if I had somebody looking over my shoulder and telling me when to do it and expecting me to turn things in on time and like reminding me that something was due, I wouldn't want to do it anymore. So I did it because I wanted to do it. And then once I wrote the book, I was like, I feel like getting paid for this book. So I'm going to sell it. And so he knew himself. He's like, I'm not going to set myself up for frustration and resistance by doing what everybody else does, which is to get a contract. That seems like the safer play. But for me, it's setting me up for failure because the minute I have that contract, I'm not going to want to do it. I got to stay close to my desire to write a book and then my desire to get paid. (laughs) There could be huge implications here in a company as well in terms of how you manage people. So let's go down that path. I'm so curious now. In terms of management, in terms of running a company or a team, do you treat upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels differently? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's very helpful if you understand how different people are coming to something and you adjust to that. So if you had an obliger, they might really thrive on a tough boss. I have a friend, she said every time she interviews for a new job, she says, I want a tough, demanding boss. That's how I do my best work. But for a rebel, they don't like that feeling of being micromanaged or having someone looking over their shoulder. They might like a boss who's like, hey, I'm going to give you a big challenge. Come back in six months. Show me what you got. You've got the chops to deal with this. Blow me away. And then they just go off and do it in their own way and in their own time. Or you can imagine, like, let's say I'm a manager and we're going to switch software, some software thing that we're using at our company. So I got 10 people in the room and I'm explaining to the team, corporate is we're switching software. And, you know, I'm talking for half an hour and some people's eyes are starting to glaze over. So I might say, hey, if you feel like you understand why we've decided as a company to make this change, please feel free to go back to your desks. If you still have questions, I'm happy to stay here for as long as you want to hear more about this decision. That way you don't drain and overwhelm others with the questions for questioners where they tend to have a lot of questions before they'll get on board. So you're there, you're available to give those answers that questioners need, but you allow others, okay, you don't need that. You're like, I'm an upholder. I'm like, fine, whatever you want. Like, okay, I got it. I got my own, I got my own calendar of stuff that I want to get done. But the question is like, I'm not going to switch software unless I understand. Why are, we, why are we making this switch? That's a good question. Questioners add a lot. They're the ones who keep us all from wasting our time, energy, and money on stuff that makes no sense. But it can be draining and overwhelming to others sometimes when their questioning continues. So you want to say like, I'll answer your questions, but everybody doesn't have to stay in the room for it. So that's just like a minor example of how you could give different people what they need targeted. This is such an intriguing framework. So now I'm about to finish your current book, Out of Order in a Calm. I'm going to jump on to the next one, which is The Four Tendencies, where Gretchen goes deeper into this personality framework. It's so intriguing. Gretchen, of all your books, which was your favorite book? I know it's hard, right? It's like asking which is your favorite child, but which was the most fun book to write? I will tell you, I've written nine books. And every time I read a book, I think, look, this is the best it's going to get. It's never going to be more fascinating than this. It's all downhill from here. And then, I'm like, and then I get to the next book and I'm like, no, this book is the most interesting book. So I would say my favorite book is whatever book I'm writing at the time. Right now I'm writing a book about the five senses and how like we could use our senses to be happier, healthier, more productive, and more creative. And I'm like, 
This is the most fun I've ever had in my life. This is so playful. I feel so energetic and so enthusiastic about this subject. So I feel like every book is my favorite book. If you've enjoyed this podcast, consider joining Mind Valley All Access. Now you can sign up to Mind Valley All Access and unlock every Mind Valley program instantly. Get access to transformation from all of the world's best minds in everything from parenting to biohacking to mind, body, spirit, entrepreneurship, work productivity. Learn from the likes of Ben Greenfield, Jim Quick, Shafali Sabari, Stephen Kotler, and more. All available to you for less than $2 a day. Simply visit mindvalley.com forward slash now. That's mindvalley.com forward slash N-O-W. And you'll be surprised to see that Mindvalley All Access now comes with advanced technologies to completely transform your learning, your networks, and your human connections, including our new private social network for students, Connections by Mindvalley, and our Altered State Inducement app, Ombana, which complements our regular training with Altered State methodologies to transform you at a subconscious level. Check it all out on mindvalley.com forward slash N-O-W. Mindvalley.com forward slash now. I didn't really go deep into your introduction when I started this podcast because you're so well known that for people who don't know about Gretchen, just some interesting random facts about Gretchen, okay? So firstly, she has sold 3.5 million books worldwide. That is a huge number for an author. She has been interviewed by Oprah, eaten dinner with Daniel Kahneman, walked arm in arm with the Dalai Lama, had her work written up in important medical journals. She has been an answer on the game show Jeopardy. And in her work, she draws from cutting-edge science, the wisdom of ages, lessons from popular culture, and her own experiences to explore how we can make our lives happier, healthier, more productive, and more creative. Other random fact, she started her career as a law clerk for Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. And it was during that time that she realized she wanted to be a writer. You've got an impressive career. I've got to do a lot of fun things, I have to say. Yep. Someday we would love to bring you on to Mind Valley as one of our official teachers. I just love what I'm picking up from you. Well, I love talking about self-improvement and how we can really achieve our aims for ourselves. And I know that that's everything that you're, I mean, we share that, that passion. I want to share my screen for a second and assign some homework to our audience here. Okay, guys. So really, really, really exciting development. If you go to Mind Valley Insights, we've now opened up insights to the entire world. So if you're a Mind Valley member, you have access to it but we wanted to see what happened if we made the tool public, okay? So I'm sharing my notes right now. So if any of you want to see this particular segment of the book that we were talking about, just go to insights.mindvalley.com. It's right there, okay? I'm going to type everything I'm learning about the book, all my favorite ideas in this particular note. Now, if any of you are currently reading the book, go ahead and share your notes. If you are listening to this on our podcast, you can now create an inside account completely free. We're doing this as an introductory thing, so you can kind of see some of the technology behind Mind Valley's learning. Important, when you create the inside account, please tag Gretchen's book. So if you type in Gretchen Rubin, you'll see all her books will appear. And obviously, tag the correct book, whether it's The Four Tendencies, or it's The Happiness Project, or it's Better Than Before, or it's Out of Order in a Calm. And this way, all of us, as we follow Gretchen's work, we can share notes with each other and we can just make ourselves better students. Mind Valley, as you know, encourages note sharing. 
And then Gretchen, you'll be able to see what people are learning from your books as well. Yeah. So on, we just did this with Matthew McConaughey's book. Matthew came on live with Priyanka Chopra. So all of this is on Mind Valley Insights. Go check it out. And as I said, even if you're on the podcast right now, this is one particular tool that we're going to make publicly available for everyone. You won't have the full suite that members have, but most of it is going to be available for you because we want to encourage learning among our community. Now, the next part of this interview is a live audience. I want you to go to the Q&A box and vote up your top questions for Gretchen. Or if you see a question that you feel should be asked, go ahead and ask that question. So I'm seeing the votes come in. The first question is from Brake. So Brake, I'm going to make you live so you can come on and ask your question directly to Gretchen. Oh, hi, Gretchen. I was, I was wondering how to actually know what to declutter if I don't know what I want to get rid of. Well, that is a huge question because it can be very emotionally taxing and physically taxing to get rid of things. The test I like to use is, do I use it? Do I need it? Or do I love it? So there's some things that you need that you don't really use or love much. So like maybe it's a pair of long underwear where every several years it gets cold enough, but when it's cold enough, you really need that long underwear. So you do need it or like something to wear for dress up when you don't get dressed up that much. But when the time comes, it's like, I really want to just have something in my closet. So I need that. Mm -hmm. And there are the things that you use and you're like, well, maybe this pair of scissors isn't exciting to me, but I use it. It's very useful. So I'm going to do that. And then there's the things you love. So sometimes there's things that we don't need and don't use, but we just love it. I think we have room in our hearts and on our shelves for things that we love. But a lot of times we have things that we don't really need them. We don't really use them. We don't really love them. Like I found like a giant metal mixing bowl. And I was mm -hmm. like, that seems useful. And yet I had never used it. And I didn't really need, need it. And I didn't really love it. So that's the kind of thing. Okay. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. So, Gretchen, could you repeat the three questions? Do uh, I use it? Do I do need I, it? Do I use it? Do I need it? Do I love it? If you have a good place to give things away, like maybe in your neighborhood, people free cycle, maybe you have a place to donate, maybe you have, you know, mm -hmm. a family that has like little kids or that's starting out that needs kind of starter equipment. If you know that something's going to go and be used, where you would put that thing so that it could be used, a lot of times that kind of loosens our hold on things because we can imagine them being like more appreciated out in the world than just like gathering dust on our own shelves. So sometimes if you identify to whom you would donate, it's easier to give things away. Yeah, that's lovely. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Our next question is on your work in habit design. And this is from Nisha. So I'm going to bring Nisha up. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. And my question is really around habits and how to use your particular tendency to design a habit effectively. And I understand from the obliger perspective what that would mean. It would mean getting an accountability partner. But from the perspective of either a questioner or a rebel, I was just hoping you could maybe share some examples of how to design a habit if you're a questioner or a rebel. Okay, yeah, that's a great, great question. So for questioners, questioners are really good at meeting an expectation once they've really accepted the fact that it makes sense. And they often like to customize things. So let's say it's like, this is a workout regimen. It's like, yeah, but I'm going to customize that for myself. But whenever questioners are kind of stuck, it's usually because really deep down, they haven't actually decided that they've 
a hundred percent believe in a certain system. Like let's say healthy eating. There are so many different approaches to healthy eating, right? There's so many different philosophies and research and there's so much science, like there's a this, is it that? The question is like, oh, I can't really commit to it. I'm like, ooh, I think it's because deep down you haven't really decided that you have found the best way, what you think is the most efficient, the most effective, customized way for you. And so if you're a questioner, you really want to look at the reasons, the rationale. Sometimes questioners can look at trusted authority. Like here's somebody, I really trust this person's judgment. I'm going to be guided by whatever they say I should do. But so for a questioner, you really want to focus on clarity and customization. I'm a morning person, so I'm going to do this first thing in the morning. Or I'm a night person, so everybody says I'm supposed to get up and exercise first thing in the morning. But I know that for me, I do better at 4 p.m. So I don't care what you say, I'm going to exercise at 4 p.m. Why? Because that's what I know works for me. That's the most efficient way for me. So for questioners, it's about reason. For rebel, it's about identity and choice and freedom. So it's like, this is the kind of person that I am. So often rebels will do something like, let's say exercise again, because that's a habit so many people want to form. A rebel wouldn't really try to form the habit of exercise the way the other three tendencies would try to form the habit of exercise. They would think about why they want to exercise. I'm an athlete. I respect my body. I want to be pain-free. I want to have like a vital old age. I want to be running up the steps to the Metropolitan Museum when I'm 85 years old. And so what am I going to, I'm going to do what I want to do that. They often thrive on spontaneity, choice, and variety. So it's like post-COVID, they might join a big gym that has lots of different classes. Today I'm doing cardio. Today I'm doing yoga. Rather than feeling locked into like, I'm going to the same class every 4 p.m. on Wednesday because that makes them feel trapped. So they're having a lot of choice. They might have one of those passes where they can go to gyms all over a town or a city so they can just do what they feel like they want. Sometimes rebels kind of like get away with things. And so maybe it's like, oh, I'm going to exercise during my workday because they think they're going to keep me trapped here behind my computer screen. I don't think so. I'm going to go out for a bike ride. But I love going for a bike ride. I love to move my body. I love to be out in nature. I love to feel the air in my face. So I ride my bike every day because that's the kind of person I am. They also can love a challenge. So, hey, you think that I can't run the marathon in 2021? Watch me. You think I can't do yoga every single day for the next six months? I'll show you, right? So they like that. Also, there's information consequences choice. This works often if you are dealing with a rebel. So you give a rebel the information they need, you tell them the consequences of their action or inaction, and then you let them choose. So let's say you're dealing with a rebel who really needs to do physical therapy after surgery and they're just not doing it. You might say something like, look, you know, the research is very clear with the surgery. The people who do physical therapy, they're free from pain medication. They don't need a lot of support in their daily life. They're traveling. They're doing whatever they want. But then there's the people who don't do their physical therapy and, you know, they're kind of stuck taking pain medication. They need a lot of help in their everyday life, like maybe getting dressed or bathing or getting around. They're not traveling. Like, you know, they can't get on a bus. They can't walk very far without like a lot of assistance. You know, they have a very different outcome. No nudges, no reminder, no nagging. Because the more you tell the rebel what to do, the more you might ignite the spirit of resistance. Give them the information they need, tell them the consequences of their action or inaction, and then let them decide. You cannot save, you cannot rescue. This can be very painful to watch. It can be hard to let somebody do something that's going to have a negative consequence, especially if it's like a child or it's a romantic partner where maybe the consequences are going to fall on you too. Yeah, you're not paying the cable bill, but my cable gets cut off too. But with a rebel, you really have to let them decide how to do their work in their own way according to their own decisions. And a lot of times I have to say, 
The other two tendencies really interfere with the rebel. They make it harder for them to do what they want to do because when that spirit of resistance is ignited, they don't do something that they would otherwise want to do and do. So you may be slowing the rebel down with all the best intentions. So, I mean, you're a rebel. What do you think? Do you have anything to add to that? This is so true, right? It's so, so, so true. I had knee surgery and I had to maintain uh, several sessions with my physiotherapist. I just couldn't. I'm like, no, I can do this. I'll figure this out. Like, I don't have time to spend an hour every week seeing a physio. And I may be right or wrong about that, but I find that the rebel so describes me. So I'm I'm laughing as I'm hearing this, but I'm realizing how on point you are. I'm also realizing that in terms of our platform on Valley, we need to take your model, your four tendencies model into account as we are creating habit formation for our students. Obligers, questioners, rebels, upholders, everyone needs a slight different nuance to how they form habits. So I understand obliger, find an accountability partner. If you're a questioner, you want to find clarity, customize it. You don't want to dig into the expert who's talking about it, really learn about it. If you're a rebel, you said identity and choice and freedom matters. Rebels need to think about why to exercise. For example, rebels also love challenges and proving themselves in the face of doubt. But now what about upholders? How do upholders create habits? Upholders are good at creating habits. That's the kind of thing that comes really naturally to upholders. That's kind of like a superpower of upholders. And I'll tell you, if you look around the world at people who are like habit experts, a lot of them are upholders because upholders do it very easily and they love habits. But of course, they're not very good teachers of habit formation because it just comes naturally to them. Any tool basically works for an upholder. So it's funny to me because I'll read something. I'm like, well, that works for you because you're an upholder. So anything would work. And also upholders often will fall into the trap of thinking, well, if something works for me, it's going to work for you. Well, maybe not because I don't need a lot of accountability as an upholder, you know, and I don't need a huge amount of rationale the way a questioner does. And so I think a lot of times, I mean, I'm sure you see this with everything. People are different. They need to have things set up in a different way for them to succeed. And this is one way where you're like, well, let's have accountability for the people who need accountability. Let's give tons of data and research and reasons for the people who need that. Let's remind people that this is what they want and like not nag them if they don't want to be nagged. I don't know about anybody here, but if there are any rebels who have used Duolingo, for some reason, many rebels have specifically said to me, I couldn't use Duolingo because of the notifications and the reminders made me not want to do it. So, okay, so deal with the notifications so you're not getting those kind of prompts that are making you turn away. And then the upholder, it's basically anything would work for the holder. So they're the people that make any tool look useful because basically anything works for them. To-do list, checklists. Right. What are you finding in terms of people who take your quiz? Like what percentages fall in each of these categories? You know, the quiz, I know the questioners out there are like, what about selection bias, Gretchen? And like, yeah, I know about selection bias, questioners. So I have the quiz that like 3.2 million people have taken. And so it's interesting to see that. But I did pay for a representative sample to really try to see, okay, if you're out in the world, I had my view just from talking to a million people of like how I thought they fell out. And then the representative sample confirmed it. The biggest tendency for both men and women is obliger. The second largest is questioner. Rebel is the smallest tendency. And upholder is only slightly larger. Those are kind of the two extremes. So you and I represent the kind of the two extremes. But Mm -hmm. a bigger bunch of people are obligers or questioners. And since people are obligers, maybe like I'll just take a second and talk about one phenomenon that's really important to understand if you are an obliger or you have obligers in your life. And that's obliger rebellion. 
This is when obligers meet, 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 meet expectations, and then suddenly they snap and they say, this I will not do. And it can be small and funny, like, I'm going to stop answering your emails for two weeks. Or it can be huge, like, I'm going to divorce you. I'm going to end a 30-year friendship. I'm going to quit this morning and walk out the door this afternoon because it's over. You're dead to me. I have had it. I've heard a lot about this in the pandemic. People being like, you know what? I'm not cooking anymore for you people. Drop night. I'm out. And the thing that's interesting about Obliger Rebellion is that it comes when an obliger feels neglected, taken advantage of, exploited, unheard. It's meant to blow up a situation where expectations have become so burdensome that the obliger just kind of can't take it anymore. So it's meant to be beneficial. It's meant to kind of be the escape hatch of a situation that's really insupportable, but it can be destructive. It's out of control. Often obligers will say that they feel like they were acting out of character. They feel like they exploded. They don't understand what just happened. The people around them don't understand. They'll say things like, well, I asked you if you wanted to be on that committee and you said, fine. So now I don't understand why you're so mad. Because, and what you want to look for with the Blanchard Rebellion is this building sense of resentment and anger. And when you know to look for a blight rebellion, you see it. People will start to say things like, I'm not acting like myself, or I've never had trouble with this before. I don't understand why I'm doing what I'm doing. And it's building and it's building and it's building. And once a blight rebellion happens, it kind of has to run its course. There's no way to stop it once it starts until it just peters out. So all of us want to be looking for situations where there is that growing anger and resentment and try to step in and say, let's make things fair. Let's deal with whatever is becoming so burdensome to you. Because you will have a situation where one person's on three committees and one person's on nine committees. That's not fair. It's all of our business to look out for this obliged rebellion. Because the thing is, obligers feel like they are exploited and taken advantage of, and they 100% are. That is why they are the rock of the world, because they're the ones who are most likely to help out. If you're like, hey, I really need someone to help, Obligers are the ones who are the most likely to say yes, which is why they're great leaders, great team members, great friends, great family members, great community members. They're the rock of the world. They pair up the most easily with the other three tendencies, but they can experience this obliger rebellion if they feel like they've been exploited. And so we all want to watch out for that. So intriguing, Gretchen. I'm really excited about reading that book. And that book, by the way, guys, is The Four Tendencies. You can find it on Amazon. But I want to come back to Gretchen's more recent book, Outer Order, Inner Calm. And we have a question here from Elisa on that book. So Elisa, I'd like to make you live so you can ask this question. And it has to do with conflict, with two people living together who have different versions of order and calm. Elisa, you're now a panelist. And this is Elisa Cavalier. Hi, Gretchen. Hi, Vision. Thank you so much for taking my uh, question. So I was wondering if you could give me a little more information or tips on the balance between, so I like outer order for my inner calmness. And my mother is all about the messier her desk is, the more she actually feels the order in her mind. We've had conversations to try to find that balance, but we still do have friction with each other. And I was wondering if you could kind of give us some tips or just ways to kind of bridge that gap between the two ways of living and how to find that balance in between? Well, I think it's really great the way you're framing it, which is kind of like, I have my way, she has her way. It's not being judgmental. It's not like she needs to be fixed or she needs to like, how do I solve her? Because she likes it one way, you like it another way. So it's really a question of like, well, how do you both thrive? One is like, okay, it's her desk. So can you as the orderly person sort of, can you have zones? 
where like she has her zone and it's especially nice if her zone is like behind a door or like where you don't have to see it or visit it. Because if you like order, it's very draining just visually to see it, even if it's somebody else's problem. So if you can put it in a place so you don't have to look at it, that's good. And then if there's a place where like, if she has her things that are out of order, sometimes what can help is like, if there's a basket or a shelf where you just put everything that's hers. So you don't have to put it away, which is kind of like an extra step. And also you might not put it where she wants it. And then that can be a source of conflict, but it's like, I need to have the living room clean so I can like sit down and read a book without being distracted by it. So I'm just going to like pick up your five things and put them on your shelf and you can do with them what you want. So again, it's a little bit more work for you, but when somebody truly doesn't care, it is very hard to make them do it. Sometimes if you pick a few things that are your particular pet peeves and you just say it in a very calm way, if you're like, you know what? The thing that just really bugs me is just the shoes kicked off in front of the front door. There's just like a hundred pairs of shoes and they're all flying all over the place. Could we work on that? Because a lot of times people will be like, I want to work with you. I can't like transform the way that I am. But if there's like hanging up my coat, putting dirty dishes in the dishwasher, whatever it is, if there's a few things, leaving newspaper all over the place, if you're old school enough to have newspaper, like a few things. Also, Can you make it easier? It's hilarious how much more likely we are to do something that's even slightly more convenient. So if you can find ways to make it more convenient for your mother to be slightly more organized, that can help. So for instance, like with the shoes, is there a basket that's right by the front door? So the shoes are still there, but they're in a basket. So maybe now the visual noise of it is diminished, but that's easy enough. It's not like, oh, you've got to go put them away in your closet, in your bedroom. It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, just put them in this basket by the door. And maybe that basket's even in a closet so you can close the closet door and you don't see them. Or like in my family, nobody ever hung up their coats. We were all too lazy to use a hanger. That's how lazy we were. So I put up a bunch of hooks inside our closet doors. And now people really do use the hooks because it's just that much easier. So sometimes if you can look for the like the little fixes, because it sounds like if she has like a spirit of also trying to accommodate, like I don't want to you know, change myself and I like it the way I like it, but maybe there's things in our shared space where we could create an environment that can work for both of us. It's interesting because you also touched on something earlier about how, and I think this is what prompted me to ask the question, where you were saying how for some of us, like I like what you would consider an austere kind of everything clean, everything away in the counter. And my mother finds it very bland and it's like, oh, why, why can't we keep things on the counter? So even to that, I'm kind of curious of how of finding that balance, because it really, I mean, you said it before and I was like, she lives in my house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's an aesthetic preference. I mean, I went over to a friend's mine's house and like on her kitchen counter, it was like spoon rest and like salt and pepper shakers and, you know, a bottle of Advil and all this stuff out. Now to her, it was very orderly. Everything was exactly where she intended it to be. Mm. She liked everything out. She's like, oh, I like seeing what everything there. And she liked this and she liked that. And I'm like, oh my gosh, give me some clear clouders. Like, but let's put this behind a cabinet door. It's tricky when you're sharing a space with somebody who just has a different aesthetic preference. And so maybe you could have like your zones and her zones, or is there a way like she wants to have things out on the counter and you're like, well, if we had like five jars that were all like matching ceramic, attractive kind of set, that Mm -hmm. to me looks orderly, but then you have your containers that have the sugar and the brown sugar and the flour or whatever. Maybe there's ways to kind of create that middle ground. I have to say, this is just a tension. It's like being a morning person and a night person. It's just people approach the world in different ways and it's not 
always so easy with shared environments because you can't convince somebody. It's not a matter of like who's got the better argument. It's just preferences. Understanding that can kind of make it less personal. It's not like you're so inconsiderate. Why are you leaving all this stuff out? When you know it bothers me, or like, why do you keep dumping all my stuff in some drawer? I like having it out. Why are you like, why do you keep handling my stuff? It's like, hey, let's just talk about this. No one has to be right. No one has to be wrong. We just have to like figure this out. And it's like, you know, it's fine. It's just like a thing. People are different. Let's, we'll figure it out. I love this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. And we are seeing, (laughs) we are seeing comments that show the different tendencies that people have. The funniest comment I'm seeing is this from Marsha. Haha, I don't get why some people have to not just listen to the Duolingo notifications, but buy clothes for the owl. That's actually a thing. People spend money to buy clothes and dress the Duolingo owl. Gretchen Rubin, thank you so much for joining us. For all of you who enjoyed this conversation, two amazing books to recommend. First, Gretchen's most recent book, Outer Order, Inner Calm. You'll easily find it everywhere on Amazon, especially, but also on GretchenRubin.com, G-R-E-T-C-H-E-N-R-U-B-I-N.com. Now, the next important thing I want you to do is to take the quiz for the four tendencies. It's a beautiful quiz. It'll take you five minutes and you'll learn so much about yourself. That's quiz.GretchenRubin.com. And finally, the second book that we spoke of is The Four Tendencies. And of course, Gretchen has had so many books out there, 3.5 million books sold, nine unique books, Go check her out on her Amazon page and on her website. Gretchen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it so much. Thank you all for your questions and comments. It was so fun to see them all. Take care, guys. I'm Vishen Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body, your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.